everybody. Welcome in to another edition of Head Coach U. I am Brian Fisher, joined, as always, by former BYU and Virginia head coach Bronco Mendenhall. And Bronco, we're, we're changing a, a, things up just a little bit, going from football to the other kind of football. Thrilled to welcome in the head coach of the North Carolina Women's Soccer Program, a legend in the business, Anson Dorrance. Anson, thank you so much for jumping on with us. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, I, I was reading through your bio and, and you know, your list of accomplishments. Uh, I mean, I think it's a, one of those multi-page type of efforts, uh, given the national titles that you've won, uh, you know, been there in Chapel Hill for over 40 years. But you grew up and, and you were born overseas. And I'm kind of curious, as someone who also grew up overseas uh, when I was younger, how did that kind of shape your your approach to being a head coach? Well, honestly, I have no idea how it um, shaped my approach to being a head coach, but it certainly gave me a unique worldview. Um, and also, I think it gave me a really interesting uh, segue into athletics because uh, one of the things that uh, really I took advantage of every time we moved is I would jump into the local sports scene and all the different places I live, they're all playing different sports. And so I developed a, a passion for almost every sport that's out there. So based on where uh, we were being raised uh, during that stretch, I jumped into the, whatever the local sports scene was. And, and I absolutely loved it. And honestly, it, uh, it helped us with the moves. So we would move from one country to the other. And of course, you're embraced immediately if you have any sort of athletic ability with the local sports teams. And you've got a, a, a collection of friends right out of the gate, uh, regardless of the sports you're playing. And, and so for me, it, I think it really benefited uh, me that I absolutely loved athletics and didn't care what the sport was. And I think that uh, caused me to, I guess, fall in love with that lifestyle. And so uh, <clears throat> when I got to UNC, to be completely honest, um, I was a good soccer player, but I wasn't necessarily an extraordinary one. But I fell in love with sports. And uh, when I got to UNC, uh, uh, the first thing that happened is I moved into Teague dorm. <clears throat> the uh, head intramural manager in Teague came down to my room and he had a clipboard. And he said, you know, Anson, uh, you know, we're so excited you're in Teague. Uh, 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 we hear you're an athlete. Uh, uh, please look at this list of winter and spring sports and tell me if you think you're good enough to compete for the dorm in any one of these sports. And so he hands me this clipboard. I look at it for several minutes and I hand it back to him. I said, listen, you want to win? You put me on every single team. <clears throat> he thought I was joking. I wasn't joking. So they put me on every single team and we started in an 11 year intramural sports dynasty. We beat everyone to death and everything. And of course, my greatest pride in beating everyone to death and everything and Bronco will appreciate this because of course, football sits, you know, at the, the apex of any, any sort of athletic uh, uh, program. <clears throat> so what I enjoyed is beating all those football players to death in every sport uh, because I don't look like much, but I'm fierce and I'm coordinated and I'm gonna take you out. And we did, our favorite games were against Erringhouse A, which is where all the football players lived. <clears throat> and I made it a mission to try to beat them in every sport. I would you know, try to get uh, nine hours sleep the night before I'd be hydrated going into whatever it was. And yeah, we took everyone apart. <clears throat> we also took apart the basketball program. We didn't care who you were, what sports you played. We were gonna annihilate you and everything. And also, I really believed in uh, winning absolutely everything. So we started recruiting. 
we had to be the first dorm intramural team to recruit. So we would find out the best athletes in each <clears throat> hometown that was coming to the University of North Carolina. And we would ask that athlete to move into Teague. And then we would uh, do something else that was ridiculous for intramural sports. We would actually practice. What a novel idea, practicing your horseshoes before you went out there and threw a couple. Uh, so <clears throat> we took this very seriously. And I'll be honest, I've been a part of three dynasties. Um, and I wouldn't rank my intramural sports dynasty behind the United States full national team that has been winning world championships and gold medals forever or my uh, women's soccer dynasty at UNC. I love sports. I love everything about it. I love competing. And for me, uh, that was the first dynasty was a, I was a part of. And to be completely honest, I am very proud of it. Uh, and uh, so for me, I just I love everything about athletics. Would you say that was maybe the entry point into coaching as you're recruiting players into the dorm and then starting practice? Is that when you think, wait a second, this coaching thing could be for me? Well, no, honestly, uh, I didn't think this coaching thing was for me. I just loved it. It was like circulating blood. It was like breathing. This wasn't like a choice I made. This is who I was. Because uh, wherever I lived in the world, I was organizing the local whatever it was game. You know, whether it was a badminton tournament in Singapore you know, or a marbles competition in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, or, you know, part of the boxing team in Nairobi, Kenya. <clears throat> yeah, I was going to I was going to organize it because I was very serious about winning everything. Um, so, uh, no, I was never interested in coaching ever. Uh, and uh, my dad was an oil businessman. And by the time I was in college, um, he was had this ambition to start his own oil company. Uh, and we were going to have a 30,000 barrel per day oil refinery in Moorhead City, North Carolina, in, uh, I think, Savannah, Georgia, and in Jacksonville, Florida. So I don't know if you guys remember when uh, uh, we were hijacked. The, uh, this oil uh, pipeline company was hijacked in the south. Uh, and uh, my dad's, I guess, vision was going to solve that problem. Um, and so his vision for me was to be his corporate attorney. I never thought about coaching, not even for a second. Uh, he wanted me to be his corporate attorney. And the family joke at the time is if I ended up serving as his corporate attorney, at least I wouldn't have a tendency to steal from my own estate. So that was my, my dad's sense of humor. So I loved my father. I was a dutiful son. So I went to law school uh, as a favor to my father, knowing that, you know, I was going to retire uh, uh on a yacht in the Mediterranean, the end of this distinguished career where eventually, of course, I would I would own the business. And then uh, <clears throat> what was really cool for me is the guy I played for at UNC, a wonderful gentleman by the name of Dr. Marvin Allen was retiring. So he went in and spoke to my athletic director, Mr. Bill Kobe, and said, uh, you know, Bill, uh, why don't you hire Anson to uh, serve as my successor? And apparently Bill liked the idea. So he calls me up out of the blue, my AD, and he says, Anson, I'd love to you know, chat with you a bit uh, about the head coaching position. I'm thinking, great, you know, I've got some ideas on who they should hire. So I went in there fully prepared with four or five names of who I thought were the best you know, college uh, male soccer coaches in the country. And I'm in there and I've got my list ready to go and I'm ready to you know, bloviate on any one of them to convince uh, Mr. Bill Kobe to hire these extraordinary distinguished gentlemen with great resumes. And before I got a word out of my mouth, he said, you know, Anson, uh, 
<clears throat> I would love for you to be our head men's soccer coach. And my jaw almost hit the floor. <laughs> I was 23 years old. <clears throat> if I ascended to that position, I was going to be coaching guys I played with. You know, I didn't have a coaching resume. My coaching resume was I was a rainbow soccer coach, which is a co-educational rec league in Chapel Hill. In fact, whenever I speak about this uh, uh, topic, I always enjoy teasing all of my colleagues that had to, you know, slog through the mines to get to the, uh, the level uh, where they were coaching collegially from high school to, you know, junior college to, you know, division three, and then finally climb their way in division one. I've, I go from co-ed rec soccer to the top of division one. It's absolutely ridiculous. But um, I absolutely fell in love with it. Uh, and then uh, while I'm finishing my law degree, and by the way, I, I took a course shy each semester in order to, uh, to coach. So I wasn't taking five classes a semester. I was taking three. Normally, you graduate law school in three years. I was going into my fourth year to finish my law degree. <clears throat> and in the spring before that fourth fall rolled around, uh, Mr. Kobe said, Anson, I want you to come watch this women's club play. And I said, well, why is that, Mr. Kobe? He says, well, this uh, women's club has petitioned for varsity status. And of course, 1972, uh, Richard Nixon, Title IX has come into view. And of course, I think all the ADs at the time were afraid of some you know, lawsuit uh, that would take them apart. <clears throat> and so I'm going out there as a favor to my athletic director to see if you know we're gonna make this club a varsity. And, I watched them play. And, yep, they're organized and they're committed. And I say, yeah, Mr. Kobe, uh, yeah, we should make them a varsity. I think the coach has done a good job. And now I'm shilling for their for their coach. These kids have done a good job. They've committed to it. Let's make them a varsity. I'll share facilities with them. I don't want to have an issue and blah, 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 blah. And then he says, Anson, uh, if you will coach both teams, I will make your part-time men's position full-time. And honestly, uh, I was making a fraction of what my wife was making. She was basically putting me through law school. I felt a little sheepish about not really contributing to the family. And so basically, I hate to admit this, but for the money, I decided I was going to coach both teams. And then before you know it, I'm in law school. I'm coaching the men. I'm coaching the women. I'm getting four to six hours sleep at night. And I don't know about you two guys. I cannot function without sleep. And I am just exhausted and I come home one day and I'm just now I'm I'm sheepishly walking uh, into my living room to talk to my wife. And I said, honey, uh, um, I know your dream was to, again, retire on this yacht in the Mediterranean, but I've decided to drop out of law school. I love this coaching gig. And if you don't mind, honey, I would love to be a soccer coach. And she said, you know, Anson, uh, I love the fact you love this. We're going to be okay. You know, uh, you know, we're going to be happy. We don't have to, we don't have to have any money. And boy, was that a very bold step for her to take. And uh, sure enough, uh, you know, we were on starvation wages, but I didn't regret one day of my life. Um, and to be honest, I was a miserable law student. Um, I wasn't much of a scholar growing up. <clears throat> In fact, my dad used to tease me all the time about my, my, my original academic award, my original, I've only won two academic awards in my life. My first one, I won the English award at St. Joseph's School in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Why? Because I was the only white kid in the school <laughs> and I was the only kid in the school who actually spoke English at home. So congratulations, Anson. 
you've won the English award at St. Joseph's School in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And honestly, that was kind of cool because Haile Selassie, the Lion of Judah, extended me my honor. So I went to the palace and like the rest of the scholars across the city and picked up the English award uh, as the only white faced person in the entire ceremony. So I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, then the only other award I won was the religion award at uh, La Villa Saint-Jean in Freiburg, Freiburg, Switzerland, because I used to debate my religion professors all the time, actually about Africa. So this is a school in Freiburg, Switzerland. And of course I was raised a Catholic and I used to debate these guys about, you know, the only way you get to heaven as a Catholic is if you have some exposure to Jesus Christ. And I used to say, this is ridiculous. You mean you are condemning the whole continent of Africa because of an accident of geography? Are you frigging kidding me? So I would spend every religion class in full debate with every theologian that they uh, sent to educate these young Catholic boys. Then the irony is, even though I'm bitterly debating all of these guys all four years, they wanted me to join the priesthood. I was thinking, my gosh, they're, you know, they're inviting the fox into the hen house. I just can't believe, you know, how liberal they were in the net they threw to buy, try to recruit priests. And of course I decided not to go in that direction, but uh, I'm not a scholar, never have been, never will be. I love to read um, and I certainly love to debate, but for me, uh, this law school thing, uh, yeah. I, I just, I wasn't very good. I was good at mood court, if that counts for anything. And that was about it. You mentioned something early on where it, it almost seems like this coaching or sports was who you were. There was an identity shaping thing that you recognized and it just resonated. And I'm wondering as you're selecting and assessing players and or anyone to be in your organization, are you looking for a similar uh, DNA where it's who they are, uh, maybe rather than just something they like to do? Well, first of all, Bronco, that's a uh, that's a really good observation. Yeah, I didn't realize it. <clears throat> Obviously, my coach realized it before I did. I love this stuff. Um, I love everything about athletics. Uh, I, I love the fight. Um, I love the camaraderie. Um, I love the team. I mean, I love everything about sports. So I think that's that's a really good insight. And so you're right. <clears throat> In assembling uh, my team, I'm basically recruiting similarly. I guess, idealistic kinds of personalities. And what we're interested in is, you know, I don't know how many of us in the coaching profession are really interested in, uh, you know, winning championships as a priority. I can't believe that anyone that's been in it as long as uh, as I have been uh, looks at that as a priority. Because boy, if that's your priority, you're gonna be disappointed a lot. And so what, uh, and maybe the religion stuff helped me in this direction. <clears throat> me and my staff, uh, we're interested in human development. And obviously, I think if you're doing a good job at a collegiate level, uh, you are in the human development business uh, because that's basically what you're doing. And all the sports, uh, I guess, culture that you've surrounded these kids with is just an avenue to explore who they are, uh, who they are when things are going well, who they are when things aren't going well. Um, one of my favorite statements was made by a UNC professor when they were asking all of these uh these people that were winning teaching awards at UNC, they asked everyone, you know, what was the greatest teacher or who was the greatest teacher you ever had and why? And most of them are saying, well, my kindergarten teacher was, you know, my motivational force or a, I had a graduate uh, a student that was a part of my PhD that really inspired me or, you know, blah, 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 blah. My favorite answer was from this comparative literature professor that said, 
the greatest coach of my life was failure. And uh, that resonated with me because here's what's what I love about sports. What I love about sports is uh, it's really developing you to be incredibly resilient because every single day in practice, uh, uh, you're not going to win everything. Uh, you're certainly not going to win every game you compete in. And so what you're developing is this capacity to get knocked down and then basically uh, get up. And so I think sports teaches all of us so many positive life lessons. And so for me, the human development piece was a priority. And obviously, uh, uh, Bronco, you'll be excited to know, uh, I was raised a Catholic, but I converted to the Mormon church. I converted uh, two years into my adulthood uh, after I had gotten married. And I loved everything about uh, the Mormon church. In fact, because uh, when I graduated from UNC, I was selling life insurance door to door. And all of a sudden, I see these two guys dressed just like me. And uh, I asked them, well, what are, you guys what are you guys selling? And they said, well, let us come over to your house and we'll tell you what we're selling. And so I set up an appointment and I didn't know who they were. And I didn't know what they were selling, but these were two Mormon missionaries. Uh, but honestly, um, I love it. I love the fact that uh, um, they're continuing to educate me spiritually in the most positive way. Uh, they're helping me frame the way I am. Uh, teaching my own kids. Uh, I, I have book clubs all over the place. And my spring book club is LDS. Uh, mm -hmm. The freshmen read Hiram Smith's The Ten uh, Successful you know, Natural Laws of Time and Life Management. Mm -hmm. He was the Franklin side of Franklin Covey. And the sophomores read you know, Stephen Covey's The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Yeah. And if you look at both books and you have any sort of uh, biblical understanding, all those books are is... Uh, theology converted into secular wisdom. Mm -hmm. And so those were absolutely two brilliant men uh, that knew how to teach the world, uh, basically Mormon uh, theology. So, uh, and so a lot of my principles in teaching my kids are basically uh, uh, LDS principles. Yeah. Um, so for me, uh, I've learned so much uh, from the church uh, and I've really appreciated every leadership position they've given me. Some of them completely unwarranted, by the way. Uh, but anyway, uh, uh, so a lot of that has shaped uh, uh, my coaching progression. I, I, I love the, the narrative and I love the comprehensive view. And more than anything, uh, when I was asked uh, as I was a head coach, um, what am I doing and why I'm developing young people through college football? College football just was this powerful platform mm -hmm. that gave me motivated learners to really teach things that were so impactful beyond the game. The game was just the way to capture their attention. <laughs> that, that everything else was was the platform to, to really make a difference. And this building resiliency idea, I love Angela Duckworth's work on grit and just the value and, of resiliency. And it, is, there more an, is there more important of a skill or trait than resiliency, the ability to, to have fortitude, right? To keep going. It just is, uh, I see people giving up uh, way too easy and as I listen to you, uh, I'm wondering uh, so many things, which is which is great. As you consider the landscape now, and we see the monetary values attached to, especially football, but as we see the landscape shifting and maybe the external environment shifting, um, number one, I'm I'm super excited and encouraged that 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 remains your purpose and motive for the program. Uh, I'm not sure how many others are intentionally doing so. I'm wondering, as you see your colleagues and, and just sport, college sports in general, um, if you're feeling a shift moving away from kind of the things you and I are talking about to 
to more entertainment, more commercialism, or or if you think there's a lot of folks still just trying to to do um, or align similar philo- philosophical to what we're talking about. Bronco, that's a great question, and and I think uh, <clears throat> you're asking the right question uh, because I think uh, too many of us uh, uh, have, I guess, the wrong ambition when we coach. And there's a great book written by David Brooks <clears throat> that all of our uh, leadership council reads. Uh, in preseason at the University of North Carolina. Actually, they read the book all summer and then we talk about it in preseason. And uh, his book is The Second Mountain. And The Second Mountain is a wonderful metaphor uh, for the mountain we should be climbing because uh, most of us just are thinking about climbing that first mountain. Yep. That first mountain are your resume virtues, you know, to get paid a lot of money, to win championships. But eventually, uh, anyone that's serious about coaching, uh, you eventually uh, understand uh, that's not really your mission. And then what you start, uh, I guess, exploring is the second mountain. The second mountain, and obviously this is directly related to uh, the LDS church and anyone that has deep spirituality. And that's to basically uh, live for a purpose, to live for something beyond yourself, to live for uh, something higher uh, than you are. And then you really get into the nitty gritty of, uh, I guess, chasing joy uh, because there's an illusion about climbing that first mountain. The first illusion is, you know, when you achieve all these things, when you start making a lot of money or when you start, you know, winning championships or something, you're going to be happy. And you have this, this illusion that that's all you need. I'm just going to be happy. And so, yeah, I win a national championship. I'm going to be happy. And, uh, Of course, none of that happens. Anyone that's won anything will tell you that just doesn't happen. And all of a sudden you're thinking, well, clearly it's because, you know, I need to be paid more money and that'll make me happy. And of course, that doesn't do anything for you either. And so what I love about David Brooks's uh, book is the metaphor he's presenting to us, which is, yeah, we need to climb two mountains. Um, And the faster we can get to climbing the second mountain, uh, the more joyful our lives are going to be. So it's about cementing relationships, about developing deep friendships, about selecting the people that you want to sort of be with to impact on your life, a life in the most positive way. And we have so many cliches that we teach our kids with. We tell them, and I think I stole this from a football coach, you know, heck, I don't know, Bronco, if this was yours or you know, Nick Saban's, but um, someone said once, uh, you're going to be the average of the seven people you hang out with most. Therefore, choose wisely. We bring up that cliche all the time. And I tell every one of my kids, you know, uh, make sure in your group of seven close friends, one of them is a scholar because you're going to need that person in your circle. Certainly while you're an academician here at the University of North Carolina, make sure one has a very deep and profound principle center, whether it's spiritual or secular, but make sure that's a part of it. If you want to be an extraordinary athlete, make sure some of them are at least committed to their own athletic development. But also make sure these are people you enjoy being with, that uh, friendships, and we teach the kids about friendships because these days, because they all live on their phones, they don't know how to develop a friend. A friend is someone you enjoy being with, you enjoy talking to, and that you can depend on. Please don't make your phone your friend. Because the biggest issue that all of us are fighting right now is the best friends for most of the kids I recruit are their phones. And there's nothing more crippling than having this device that you walk around with that basically rules your life, that sort of judges you 
on whether or not you're attractive enough or whether or not you're popular enough or whether or not you're cool enough. And all you're getting from this phone uh, is the insipid impression that you're absolutely nothing. Certainly relative to the rest of the world, you're nothing. And so, no, be valued. Your phone doesn't value you. You just turn it on. So get connected with the people around you. And so for me, a part of the mission for most of these kids that we recruit is, okay, who are your seven best friends on this team? If they struggle to name seven, they're in trouble. And most of them struggle to name seven. Yeah, most of us can name one or two. That's not enough. And it's so interesting that we're having this conversation right now. My wife and I are on this Netflix documentary thing of Blue Zones. Blue Zones are cultures where the people live beyond the age of 100. So they talk about Okinawa. They talk about Sardinia. They talk about all these places in the world where so many of these people are living into their hundreds. And what are the core elements of their survival? They are in communities that love them, that take care of them. Um, I mean, it's just so incredible how these things that we're talking about right now are so critical for your survival. I mean, so for me, uh, these are things we talk about all the time uh, with our kids. Uh, uh, we want them uh, to develop uh, close connections with as many people as possible. And obviously, if possible, and obviously we let the kids select this, we want them to connect with us. And uh, I have to give my uh, men's basketball coach full credit. Uh, Hubert Davis, in his first year, first of all, took Krzyzewski down twice, which is wonderful when you're a Tar Heel. We beat them in his last game in Cameron, which was overjoyed. Uh, and then, of course, we knocked him out of the NCAA tournament in the semifinal. Uh, and his team basically was not a great team. They were an ordinary team. And all of us on campus were trying to parse what made them special. And we all started adopting uh, this philosophy that Hubert Davis believed in, which is he required all 12 of his scholarship players to come by the office every day and say hello to every member of his coaching staff. And I'm thinking to myself, that is just sheer genius. That's sheer genius. And he said when they came by, basketball was rarely going to be a conversation. It was going to be what's going on in your life, you know, how are your parents doing? You know, what's your brother and sister up to? What are your ambitions, you know, post-professional basketball? And so you got to really know the kids in, in the most real and positive way. <clears throat> and so all these things, I think, are critical for all of us. So we need, we need human connection. And uh, I'm, I'm not sharing this uh, uh, with any profoundly in a way that I'm trying to explain uh, the United States right now, but I really dislike where we are. I just dislike our tribal nature. I dislike that we have hate groups now, and we have hate groups for the wrong reason. One of the reasons our kids read David Brooks is because he's a conservative, but we also have our kids read David Foster Wallace's This Is Water, which is the greatest commencement address I have ever read in my life. It is radically liberal, just like David Brooks's philosophy in The Second Mountain is radically conservative. And what we love about the conclusion of our conversations about these two extraordinary men and their philosophies, they arrive at the same place. So if you're our true Republican and a true conservative, and you're our true liberal, you guys are going to arrive at the same place. So please embrace each other. 
it's like one of my favorite Michael Jordan comments when uh, he was being chastised for not being a, 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 a cultural warrior for uh, black athletes or basically uh, the African-American population. And his statement was great. He says, well, Republicans buy shoes, too. And so he didn't want to alienate anyone. And you know what? I love that, even though obviously that's sort of a mercenary statement. I like that. I don't want to have, you know, classifications of human beings. I don't want to have one uh, group hate the other group uh, because of, you know, who they voted for. Uh, because if you look at the core principles of both, I guess, political parties, we arrive at exactly the same place. And obviously the problem with the paid liars and Fox News is no one knows what the truth is anymore uh, because basically that's being certified as truth. And of course it's not, but if we go to the core conservative principles, they're outstanding. If you go to the core uh, liberal pr principles, they're outstanding. So let's, let's unite the clans. My gosh, let's unite the clans. And on my team, everyone knows I had one girl one year and obviously in, in collegiate environments, so most of the culture is liberal. And I have this one wonderful conservative that says, Anson, uh, um, Trump just won the election. Do you mind if I wear all red to practice tomorrow? I said, not a problem. Go to town. And of course, she's wearing all red in practice. And now she's being attacked by half of my team. And I said, no, no. She's allowed to vote for whomever she pleases. And I will defend that to my death. None of you guys are going to try to shame her or basically repudiate her for who she voted for. As long as she treats everyone on this roster with respect, black, white, Republican, Democrat, she is a part of my culture. You are not gonna attack her for who she voted for. And so to this day, uh, I'm very close to her and her family because they know I will protect her opinion to the death. Hmm. Uh, and that's the case in my diverse culture. We will protect everyone. You know, I, I, I love the approach and there's so much uh, value in that approach as I listened to a, a talk just last night and it talked about labels being limiting, isms dividing. And we have lots of isms and we have ageism, sexism, racism. We have lots of isms and lots of labels. Um, and instant labeling really lets so many people off the hook of really doing the deep work of getting to know someone. And in our program, at least at the University of Virginia, I simply would not work with anyone I didn't like or recruit someone I didn't like. And, and you mentioned friendships. That, that means that you enjoy their company, but you couldn't wait to talk to them. You couldn't wait to see them. And I use the simple kind of met a litmus test of if I had a half hour only, would I want to go find this person to do something with them? And, and I found if I surrounded myself with those type of people, of that culture, even though there were differences and wide ranging differences, there was a commonality of, mm -hmm. uh, of um, connectedness and the output really was joy. It was a joyful organization. Mm -hmm. And that didn't mean perfect and it didn't mean guaranteed wins, but it did mean fun. It did mean joy. It did mean competing. And it also meant you used uh, another word that I really liked, you could depend on them. And wow, is that powerful. And so um, it's, Fascinating and I think powerful to hear with so much division um, and you're seeing it even within your team that you're making a stand and maybe modeling maybe on a, a, a for a broader perspective how 
and what that should look like to bring people together. And I think it's needed and college sport can do that. The visibility and scope and scale of college sport, man, is it a powerful uh, ambassador for good if used. Rocco, I completely agree and I appreciate that statement and and you've experienced this. Uh, uh, and yeah, we've got to figure out a way to unite the clans. I don't like what's happening to my country. We've all got to get together uh, and agree on the right direction because uh, I hate watching us get torn apart. And you're right. I think when you hang out with someone long enough, you're going to see the, the, the humanity in them. Mm-hmm. And uh, regardless of who they vote for or, or whatever, we can connect on a human level. And that should be our ambition, uh, certainly for all of us involved in sport. Yeah, really love that. And I love uh, the the analogy of your or or the methods of your basketball coach. And one of the things I used to counsel players on my team, if they were having trouble with someone else, I said, have you had a meal with them? Have you sat down and had a meal with them? And so in in UNC basketball, players are coming to say hello to people. They're having to go out of their way, probably walk um, and plan, which is sacrifice. So they're investing effort into someone else. And it might have been a rule. However, Eventually, I bet it was more of a pull than a push, mm-hmm. uh, and they were kind of drawn to connecting, and we all need connecting. There's a great book, and I've shared this on the podcast before, Irresistible, talking about the power of the cell phone, mm-hmm. the most addictive device known to man. And and so you've already framed that really well. The connections with human kind is powerful. It's needed, and it's just fun to hear your emphasis on that. And so if you were – maybe we'll finish with this. If you were to advise now – Gosh, someone that's coming up in the ranks of to be a head coach of any sport or to enter college athletics. Um, I don't know what advice or what counsel would you give them as they enter this, man, this powerful platform to, to build people. Um, how would you advise them uh, as they were starting? Well, obviously, uh, I can tell already that you're exceptionally well read. <clears throat> I think what's critical for us is there's so much extraordinary information out there if we will just hunt it. Mm. So I think uh, the most important Mm. thing is for all of us to keep learning. Mm. So be a lifetime learner. And for me, that's reading. And again, I was never much of a scholar, um, but I love to read. Uh, I love ideas. And I think uh, um, committing yourself to uh, continuing to educate yourself, Mm -hmm. uh, to become a reader uh, of good books, of, you know, good principles. Uh, I'm one of these guys that, you know, reads all the greatest business books, because I think I can be taught a lot of things by all of these remarkable uh, uh, people in the business world. Uh, But also, uh, honestly, uh, what uh, uh, the LDS Church guides me towards in reading uh, is also uh, critical. So, uh, but also have a balance in what you read. I mean, I told this to someone a long time ago. If I just read what I wanted to, all I would read is biographies. (laughs) And I think I would be really limited if I didn't read the other things. And so, as everyone knows, it knows me well. If you come to my home and were to come into my bedroom, you would see 10 to 15 books stacked up on my uh, on my cabinet right next to my bed. The books are all different. Uh, there are certainly leadership books. There are books about spirituality. There are books about differences in men and women. Uh, there are biographies because, boy, do I love reading biographies. But there's a huge range of things that I read. And I'm inspired by all kinds of things that I read. So I think the critical first step that all of us have to embrace is the illusion that you know everything. Because what you'll start to realize when you start reading everything is you know virtually nothing. Um, And so to embrace that right out of the gate. So remain humble uh, and then uh, just be uh, 
an aggressive, active learner, be humble about it, and then chase things like this. Because uh, did you mention Irresistible was uh, the book? Yeah, I did. So I've memorized that. So <laughs> believe it or not, uh, you've just paid Amazon two bucks because uh, I'm going to certainly order that book because, yeah, I want to learn, you know, from the things that have inspired you. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I think uh, the young coach has to just uh, embrace the fact that every single night I try to read two to three hours as I'm falling asleep. Um, and I think that's absolutely critical. And then uh, discuss it, which is why, and this will, this is crazy. I never turned down a podcast. Never. I have been interviewed by these two 12 year olds over in Durham <laughs> that have this podcast. They brought me on two or three times now. I will never not agree to do their podcast. And you guys know this because you're in the business. It's amazing how much you learn from talking to people. Not so much only that you learn from them. It's amazing what you learn about yourself when you're asked a question and all of a sudden you have to answer it and you're thinking, oh my gosh, I didn't know that's how I was gonna answer that. And what's also interesting when they, these people send me uh, what we're, you're gonna ask me, I don't wanna know what you're gonna ask me. I do not wanna have a rehearsed answer for any question you give me. So I'd rather you just come up with your list of questions and fire away because I'm curious during this particular moment how I would answer this mm -hmm. particular question. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite recent ones is uh, this person asked me, well, um, Anson, what are you an expert in? <clears throat> I had a line prepared <laughs> because I was listening to the Rachel Maddow show and she had brought an expert on and the expert turned it on her and said, uh, Rachel, what are you an expert in? And I actually saw her reflecting for a minute and her head was bobbing around and I was thinking, oh my gosh, she's actually thinking about how to answer this question. Her answer was absolutely brilliant. She said, I am an expert in reading comprehension. And what I love about listening to her is she explains things to me that I don't understand. Mm. And so I started to reflect on what I'm an expert in. And so am I an expert in soccer? Well, I certainly know something about soccer. Um, but I think there are millions of people out there that know more about soccer than I do. But the more I thought about it, I think I am an expert in something. I am an expert in competition. Mm. I know how to compete. I know how to motivate my athletes to compete. I know how to drive people to the next level in their own development mentally, because that's my strength. I have spent my life trying to beat everyone to death in the most positive way in everything I've ever done. And so you'll love this now that I'm, you know, 72 years old. So my 12 or 13 year old son, uh, I just beaten him in something, you know, for the 4,000th time. And he's got tears in his eyes. His dad, am I ever going to beat you in anything? I said, Donovan, eventually you're going to beat me in everything. And then he thought for a second, he said, chess. I said, no, I'm never going to let you beat me in chess. <laughs> but basically um, for me, that's my expertise. Mm -hmm. I've always been, uh, I was a four foot 11 freshman in high school. Uh, it's sort of like the stories about the fastest people in the world. The fastest people in the world are the sixth, seventh or eighth sibling. Yes. Cause they've spent I've, their I've lives. Read that research. Yeah. Spent their lives trying to keep up with their older brothers and sisters. I have spent my life clawing to try to compete with the people in my own age. Cause I'm, I was so small growing up. And so as a result, I have developed into a fierce competitor 
that wins not because of anything except mentality. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I understand competition. And so I am an expert in competition. I, I love that. And so many folks uh, are not self-aware. And when they self-assess, they're completely inaccurate because they won't, they just simply won't ask or listen to true feedback um, because sometimes that's hard to hear. And, and to be that clear on what you're an expert in is a valuable exercise. I also love uh, and, and uh, will not take questions in advance because I love the contemplation and the reflection required, even if my answer um, isn't appealing, whether it's a live interview or et cetera. And sometimes it's to my own detriment, but I love the growth that happens <laughs> through the reflection in the moment. And, and wow, is that powerful and growing is hard, but it's great. And I just, what an enlightening conversation. And so I appreciate you joining us. I appreciate the perspective, the breadth and depth of topics uh, already and just uh, a lot to think about. So thank you very much for joining us today. Bronco, we're cut from the same cloth. I can't <laughs> tell you how much I've enjoyed this interview and how much I agree with everything you've said. <laughs> thank you. Well, Anton, a terrific uh, episode. And, and I think we, we might have to have you on uh, down the road again, just because, number one, you never turned out. <laughs> that's, 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 that's always correct. great to hear for, as, as someone who helps book this, but uh, terrific insight. And, and, and I, I, it's always great about this this podcast, too, is, is we never end up talking uh, you know, shop or, or what's going mm -hmm. on in the field. But we are talking after the World, Women's World Cup. I, I know you're mm -hmm. rooting there for the three lionesses, uh, given <laughs> a couple of your personal connections there. But um, just what, what is the state of, uh, of the women's soccer game and how much more kind of growth is, is there out there? Well, honestly, it's going through the roof and I just can't believe it. Obviously, Australia, New, New Zealand, uh, the attendance was extraordinary. The viewership all over the world was extraordinary. Uh, Barcelona in their last two home games had over 91,000 people paying top dollar to watch their women's professional team play. So if we're going to start to attract crowds of 91,000 in women's uh, football, uh, the game has changed. Uh, and now the millionaires across the United States are jumping into our pro league, which means our young women will be paid more and more. Um, the United States has a unique leadership position because even though we're not world champions anymore, we are uh, the leaders in basically equality. So there's not a, a national team out there that doesn't respect the United States uh, for the way we lead in the right way. Uh, we've always fought for equal pay. We've always represented the LGBT uh, community incredibly well. And so for all the right reasons, uh, the United States is still a, a spiritual and cultural leader in women's football. But now they're starting to get paid. They're getting paid because people are watching, uh, but they're also getting paid because uh, people are fighting for them. And it's not just women. What I love about the men's national team when the women were fighting for equal pay, the men's national team jumped in with the women. And so obviously uh, there are champions on both side of the, sides of the gender divide, uh, and we love it. So our game's taking off in the most positive way. I'm trying to figure out a way how to sell out my 4,200-seat you know, soccer stadium. So that's where I am. So I'm still at sort of a grassroots uh, you know, marketing level. But uh, I think that should be our moral imperative as well. Wherever you are uh, for the sport that you, uh, you know, support, figure out ways to buy season tickets to all the teams that live nearby if you can afford it. Uh, support the teams and the people around you. And our game, honestly, Brian, is taking off like a rocket. So uh, the state of the game is very healthy, uh, and I'm very proud of where we are, but also where we're going. 
Uh, well, well said and, and, and completely agree. And Anson, I, again, I will, we'll have to have you back on uh, hope, hopefully after your 45th season in there uh, concludes there in Chapel Hill, but I, I know you guys got off to a great start and uh, we're looking forward to, to following you the rest of the way. Thank you so much for jumping on with us. My pleasure, gentlemen, thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Well, for Anson Dorrance and Bronco Mendenhall, I'm Brian Fisher. We'll catch you again next week here on Head Coach Yield.